0: welcome to the metagenics clinical podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world hi everyone welcome to metagenics clinical podcast i'm your host nathan rose and with me today we have our first repeat guest on the podcast in dr michael ruscio Dr. Ruscio is a functional medicine practitioner who has an interest in gut health, and he spoke at our 2017 International Congress on Natural Medicine. Today, we're here to follow up on some outstanding questions that came from Dr. Ruscio's talk, particularly on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO. Welcome, Dr. Ruscio. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you again.
1: Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Uh, so yeah, you had a you had a bunch of questions left over from the Congress. Do you just want to fire in, yeah. and can start going through those one by one.
0: Certainly, we'll roll through them I in mean, no real particular order, but a, a lot of them are around um, SIBO testing and and treatment, particularly with um, in Australia, where naturopaths don't get access to things like rifaximin and so forth, to rely heavily, obviously, on uh, herbal remedies. So I'll fire from the top. Um, the, the first one, which we've been asked a lot about, is if um, using natural antimicrobials. Is it necessary to do breath testing? saying that the breath testing data is mostly on the use of rifaximin.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I certainly see both sides of of the position on this, being pro testing or being anti testing, and I think you can make a case for both. I certainly think that you could forego testing and just try a therapeutic trial. Or perform a therapeutic trial with herbal antimicrobials and see how someone responds. This is essentially what's being done in some circles with rifaximin now, because rifaximin was FDA approved for IBS type D, diarrheal type IBS. Doesn't necessarily require a doctor. Let's say you go to a conventional gastroenterologist and you have IBS D. They don't have to do a breath test to substantiate the use of rifaximin. Now, I'm I'm not necessarily following all of the FDA's recommendations in my in my clinical practice, Um, but I don't think we have to have breath testing to perform rifaximin antibiotic therapy or herbal antimicrobial therapy. However, if someone does not respond optimally to that treatment, it is helpful to have pre and then post testing because this can help you answer the question, did the person have SIBO? We treated them and their SIBO is now gone, but they're still symptomatic or did the person have SIBO? We treated them, and their SIBO is still there, and they're still symptomatic. So, sure. you know, it can it can help you get a, a better understanding of what's happening underneath the surface. So, what I tell my patients when they ask me this question is essentially that, which is if if you're someone who responds well, then we're not going to really need the testing. But if we treat you, and you don't respond that well, it may be helpful if we had done that initial baseline testing. And and so as a clinician, or I guess as as a patient, kind of trying to steer some of your self care, you can look at your own case or the case that you're working with to help answer that question. If it's someone who has had a, a fairly mild presentation in terms of severity of their symptoms, um, that can be very suggestive that they may not need testing. If this person hasn't changed their diet or hasn't done other therapies, I would go back to some simple therapies like diet and probiotics first before even considering testing. On the other side of the spectrum, if someone's already changed their diet, they've done maybe one or two dietary trials. Let's say they did paleo, didn't respond that great, did low FODMAP, didn't respond that great. Uh, If they've been dealing with this for a while, um, maybe if they've done a round of Rifaximin and haven't responded, if they're looking like a more complicated or non-responsive type case, then leaning toward the testing I think makes a little bit more sense. So uh, in short, you can make a case for it either way. Looking at the presentation and, and some of the history of the individual can be helpful in steering which way you go.
0: Great. So yeah, certainly the, the patient who presents in their, their symptoms and their history and so forth will help determine which way you go. And, and you probably negotiate or have the conversation with the, the patient as well about the pros and cons of doing the test.
1: Exactly. And and the approach that I'm using more so now is we do baseline testing on most of our patients. And if someone doesn't respond optim, so if someone responds beautifully to that initial round of treatment, we oftentimes won't even bother retesting because now we've, you know, if if we've established our clinical goal, then in my opinion, there's not a need to do testing to quantify what I'm anticipating is already going to be present. Um, And what I typically am am doing now is if we do one round of treatment and we don't see an optimum response, we, we may continue treating, modify treatment, try a different treatment approach entirely, and try to come at the uh, you know the the the, the case a, a few different ways and try to get to a point where we've achieved a notable clinical response and then retest in those cases just to kind of verify that that we are where we should be and and, and the reason I do that is I try to avoid retesting a patient who I know is likely still going to have SIBO yeah because that that just wastes time and it wastes money and yes. it's it's tempting to try to be quote-unquote scientific but you have to balance that out with with being able to get a patient results quickly uh, and and not getting too distracted with uh, with testing
0: yeah uh, just on that topic I suppose now that you've been you know an expert in sibo and, and gut for a while now you are you would you think you're getting a, a different uh, cohort of patients coming to you now that you're getting that is more trickier cases than perhaps a more general practitioner
1: yes I, I mean I certainly i I see a spectrum and and I think and and, um, and i and I try to. Let me see, how can I say this? I, I I try to keep my practice balanced. Okay. Um, and and I think one of the things that that has been helpful in keeping the practice balanced is mentioning and being an advocate of simple, practical, and cost-effective functional medicine. So, I think that message is very appealing to patients that are are more treatment naive, if you will, and, and they, they haven't mm. undergone much treatment and there tend to be simpler cases. So we have that on the one hand. Then on the other hand, my, my deep focus in SIBO does bring in some of the more challenging cases. So I have a mix um, of both. Um, and, and so I'm not sure if that answers yeah, your yeah, question, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah there, there's definitely a mix.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if you know, the patients you're, you see are, are different to as said, the, the general practitioner in a sense and whether you'd be doing more testing than you would have done, um, say, three or four years ago because you saw a different group of symptoms and patients. Sure, sure. Great. All right. Now, moving on. Um, so with obviously the, the SIBO testing, we can measure methane and hydrogen, and a lot of clinicians are looking now at employing specific herbal remedies for each um, gas in a sense. What's your views on um, employing that sort of strategy? Do you you follow that?
1: Well, there's speculation as to certain herbs being better for hydrogen or methane. Uh, And I'm certainly open to it. But I think at this point, it's much more speculative and and anecdotal than it is something that's been highly verified. So, um, I mean... I, I guess maybe to answer this with, with what I typically do is I typically start patients off with kind of a standard broad spectrum protocol. And my thinking here is we, uh, we you know, you know w- with a broad spectrum protocol, we can address bacterial dysbiosis, fungal dysbiosis, and potentially protozoal overgrowths also. So I like that broader approach of giving the microbiota a nudge to try to nudge down the population of any overgrowth of bacteria fungus and protozoa so as to allow a healthier equilibrium to be established in the gut now you can make the argument that if someone has higher methane you should give them you know, alcillin has been claimed to be better for for methane there, there's also another formula known as otron till it's been claimed to be better uh, you could do that i don't think it's necessary and i, I think that may be overcomplicating things slightly and i i would caution clinicians slightly about this because, if, if you let th- this speculation cloud your clinical observations, then that's going to hinder your ability to successfully, you know, um, steer the case, so to speak. So, uh, I'm certainly open if if the right information is presented, then I will update accordingly. But right now, it seems to be very speculative, so I would be cautious, and I would just make sure not to let the speculative information again cloud your. Clinical observations. You don't want to have this, you know, bias ingrained in your head where you're expecting to see X, and you, you have this, uh, you know, almost created confirmation bias that you see. Yeah,
0: definitely. Great. All right, moving away from um, SIBO testing, the breath testing. I Wanted to ask about anti vinklin auto um, antibodies. Um, Dr. Mark Pimentel, who's really um, mapped out the pathology of um, certainly post-infectious IBS causing SIBO and how the, the um, antibodies attack the, the gut wall and so forth, and there's a commercially available test now for this. Um, what, have you looked into this? What's your thoughts in the clinical setting?
1: Mm-hmm. So that that test was first released in the U.S. through a lab known as Commonwealth Labs and a test known as IBS Check. That test is no longer available. I'm, I'm not sure if they are revamping or reorganizing or rebranding or if they were acquired, but that test is no longer available. However, Quest Diagnostics now offers that test as a test known as IBS Detects. And I, I wasn't huge into using the Commonwealth because it was not or was very difficult to have covered by insurance, and you had to have a patient go through the rigors of a separate standalone test. Um, so it, it was hard to fit conveniently into a clinical model unless you were doing phlebotomy in office, which we don't. And so it was logistically difficult. Now that Quest is offering it, we've been ordering it more. Um, and I think it's terrific that we've mapped out some of this pathophysiology. However, it's important uh, again, you know, not to not to confuse academic research with clinical research. Mm. The clinical utility of that testing. It right now is is prominently consolidated to the use of trying to differential diagnose inflammatory bowel disease from IBS that that's where it has it is it's been recommended for its prominent utility if you have a patient with the symptoms of IBS mixed or IBS I, IBS diarrheal that can also look very much like IBD. And so this can be a screening test to help substantiate this is IBS and not IBD. And if this can prevent a patient from going through more in-depth testing, especially for some of the IBD testing, uh, being a colonoscopy, then that can certainly save a patient from the rigor and the expense and the inconvenience of more invasive testing. Now, one of the reasons why I recommend caution uh, be- between looking at academics versus clinical is at least in my thinking anyway knowing that the autoimmunity against motility apparatus is present you would be inclined to think would correlate with patients with constipation because the motility is damaged yeah. and even even though this is motility in the small intestine it, it, it in my mind stands to reason that we would see an association between everything slowing in the small intestine and things also slowing in the colon and therefore a constipative type presentation. However, recent research has shown that the antiviculin and, and CDTB antibodies do not correlate with constipative type IBS and those positive antibodies only correlate with mixed type or diarrheal type IBS. Um, so it, it throws a little bit of a monkey wrench in terms of what we, you know, the inferences that we would draw from yes. academic observations. And so, again, this is why I, I don't try to be like a party pooper, but, you know, we, we, need to, we need to have a treatment mapped out when we see these antibodies elevated, what do we do? It, it, and, and outside of the screening tool utility that I mentioned a moment ago, it may suggest, and this is speculation, but it may suggest that someone would be a better candidate for a prokinetic drug if they have these antibodies positive. I'm not totally sold on that. Uh, I'm certainly open if the right evidence is is produced. But for right now, I think we still have a lot to learn on the uh, uh, you know motility autoimmunity testing. So if, if you if you do use the testing, just just be cautious and don't try to over-utilize the testing. You know, Realize that it, it may be helpful, it may not be helpful. I wouldn't put all of your eggs in that basket, so to speak.
0: Okay, great. So it sounds like it's a, it's a tool to, you know, a toolbox, um, it has its limitations like pretty much every test we have. And I might use that as a, a bit of a segue to a look at the your broader toolbox um, you're currently using, say, for a, an IBS um, suspect SIBO patient. What sort of, and perhaps maybe more of a, a more difficult case. What would be your sort of standard workup, or things, functional tests, or conventional tests you would consider um, performing?
1: Sure, sure. Good, good question. And part of this depends on the patient that walks in your door. Um, Now, I mentioned a moment ago that we have a mix of patients, and I I should probably clarify that we don't often see patients who have done nothing, right? We we usually see patients who have at least improve their diet, you know, trying to pull out processed foods, maybe trying a Mediterranean diet, maybe trying a paleo-like diet, um, maybe tried a probiotic or two. Uh, but that that's still fairly treatment-naive relative to the spectrum of, you know, some people come in and they know all about the antiviculant yeah. antibodies, right? <laughs> so uh, that's, that's still, I think, more toward the beginner end of the spectrum. However, if someone comes in and they're on no diet plan, they've never taken a probiotic, they don't even know what fermented foods are, then we're going to start really simple and not even do any testing. We'll probably have them go on either a paleo diet or a paleo low FODMAP diet, have them use a probiotic, some vitamin D, maybe a fish oil, some some basic fundamentals, and then reevaluate in about a month, and, and if they see 70-80% improvement, we'll probably ride that wave for a while. If they've only minimally improved, then we'll go into some testing. Of course, if they're a more complex case right out of the gate, we'll go right into that testing on day one. Um, A SIBO breath test is definitely something, of course, that uh, many patients get. And then we usually pair that with a a suite of, of GI markers, kind of your traditional testing where you look for H. pylori, candida, Yersinia, toxoplasmosis, amoebas. You know, you're, you're generally looking for dysbiosis and oven and parasites. Um, sometimes we do this through certain functional medicine labs, um, BioHealth, um, diagnostics, uh, Diagnostic Solutions, Doctor's Data. You know, all, all pretty good companies in my mind. Or we'll use a profile through LabCorp or Quest. And there are some advantages actually to LabCorp request because you can get blood antibody testing for things like Candida and you can also get an H. pylori breath test uh, and actually H. pylori antibodies uh, via blood. Um, So that's typically what we will look at. Um, There's some specific markers in there that are a little bit beyond the scope of this conversation, but if people did want to see... Exactly what all of those markers look like. We do have our monthly clinical newsletter, the Future of Functional Medicine Review clinical newsletter, wherein you'll see exactly what labs I ordered and the results. So if clinicians really want to get a deep dive there for all of the, you know, twenty markers that we may order from Lab or Quest, yeah. then that's included in uh, in the case studies. And and then we also will do a standard health and wellness panel that looks at liver and kidney, a, a CBC. Um, with differential comprehensive metabolic panel, um, thyroid, lipids, vitamin D, some inflammatory markers, iron status, um, and and that's you know that's pretty much what our initial testing looks like. You can make an argument for adrenal testing, but. Yeah. That is a, a very poor argument, in my opinion. You could you could make an argument for female hormone testing again. Initial phase. That's a very, you know, very poor argument. Food allergy testing also would not you know, recommend that. Um, organic acids, I you know, wouldn't recommend that out of the gate. And we had a podcast recently where uh, Jeff Moss was on and went into that's detail wrong. about that. So our initial panel, it's it's gut focused with a few other relevant markers included. And that's really as complicated as it needs to be for for most patients to to give you a good handle on what's going on and give you some keys in terms of where to go next. Now the one exception to that, sorry, is if we're expecting inflammatory bowel disease and then we'll include some specific anti, um, not anti-inflammatory, inflammatory inflammatory markers like lactoferrin and calprotectin and then also potentially the IBD uh, antibody assay.
0: Okay. Um, Whilst we're there, I I recall at our Congress this year when um, Professor Rob Knight was speaking, he mentioned there was an emerging microbiome marker that he felt correlated better than fecal calprotectin. I I remember looking at you and it piqued your interest. Have you looked into that?
1: Yes, because that that would be something that would be very clinically applicable. So that definitely always, things like that, piqued my interest. Um, And we actually had Rob Knight on the podcast. Uh, Him and I spoke I think it was last week, actually, and that podcast will be going out in maybe another month or so. Um, Essentially, they've done one study where they've shown that a certain signature can be more accurate in predicting IBD relapse than it was either lactoferrin or calprotectin. Um, I don't recall which one exactly. but they they need to replicate that outside of that setting. And it, so it's it's getting close to being clinically applicable, but it's not there just yet.
0: Okay, great. And just one more on, on testing. I know you've got um, views on, like, DNA testing and microbiome, which I, I completely get from a clinical perspective. Are there any other tests perhaps that you don't recommend that maybe you're overemphasized in functional medicine, say, like, intestinal permeability because it's pretty common, et cetera, any, any of those sort of tests?
1: Uh, one that I think is, is probably important to mention, and I think the audience has probably heard me say this before, but it's just, I think, important to mention again, is mapping of the microbiota. Right? And there's different DNA tests and there, that DNA technology tests that do this that are direct to consumer. Um, there's many different companies that offer the ability to map your microbiota, give you a, a full readout of all the bacteria, sometimes all the bacteria and the fungus. And I just can't emphasize enough that these tests are not ready for clinical practice. They they don't have any clinical meaning. And um, Professor Knight corroborated that when he was on the podcast a few days ago. He made that statement at the Congress on a, on the Q and A panel. Um, so, if you don't take it from my mouth, take it from one of the leading researchers specifically in that niche, you know, these things cannot be used clinically, clinically yet, and, and why this is frustrating is just last week in the patient, or in the clinic, I'm sorry, I had a patient who spent $400 on one of these direct-to-consumer, map your microbiota tests, only to find out later from me that that is clinically useless. So. Um, you know i don't make this criticism just because i have anything against the companies that are doing that yeah um i only the only issue i take is if these companies are marketing the test as something clinically relevant which unfortunately many of them are i just saw a facebook post the other day um you know and and unfortunately it was endorsed by a pretty big name in functional medicine but you know this if you click through to this company's website there the home page makes all these claims what if disease was an option what if you could have the body that you wanted what if you no longer needed to have food allergies and then the solution is this you know three four or five hundred dollar microbiota mapping test which you know it's it's kind of appalling I, I hate to say that but when you when you have something that has not been shown to be actionable or helpful or to produce a result and you market it as such and it costs a lot of money um, it's that's not great. Right? Sort of, I agree. Um, I'm filtering what I want to you know, use a profanity right now, uh, but I try to keep this podcast clean, but it's, it's, it's frustrating. So I would definitely recommend against microbiota mapping. And I would take great pause with any other tests that are recommended outside of the simple ones that I laid out. Gut permeability testing, probably not needed. Fruit allergies, probably not needed. I would even make the argument that that lime uh, testing or, or metal mold testing may not. Be best positioned until you've tried to improve your gut health. It's not to say that those tests should never be done. Yeah. But I think it's a fairly safe perspective to say get your gut healthier first, and then move on to those other treatments. And to give you two examples, some of the herbs that are used for Lyme can be a little bit irritating to the gut. Some of the detox or, or you know, pseudo chelating compounds mm-hmm. that are used for chronic um, inflammatory response syndrome can be constipating. So it can be helpful to get your gut in the best shape possible so you can tolerate some of these further treatments amongst other reasons why starting with the gut is is a good idea. So, and it kind of answers your question. There's a lot of tests we could potentially run through, uh, but I would say, you know, start with the gut focused tests and and most specifically the ones I mentioned a moment ago and, and try not to get pulled into anything outside of that.
0: Fantastic. Yeah totally agree is um stick with the basics and you also did the ones outside the gutter which like thyroid and so forth which i think are really important as well all right uh, i want to move on to cyber sebo treatment now uh something that's uh popular at least in australia is this like pulse dosing of antimicrobials So, it sort of comes from a bit of a the old view of uh, weed seed and feed and Basically, the practitioners prescribe antimicrobials, say, two days a week, typically on the weekend, because they felt there'd be these horrific Herxheimer reactions and it was debilitating for the patient and so forth. And then during the week, the, the quote-unquote, the seeding and healing phase, and this would be repeated over 10, 6 to 10 weeks, as opposed to, say, a two-week of rifaximin or four-week of antimicrobials. Uh, what's your views on this um, pulsing method?
1: You know, my, my take on this is it, it's probably unnecessarily complicated. And, and I think something that is very important for the entire field to do is to try to move toward the simplest and most effective recommendations rather than trying to move to the most exotic recommendations. And, and oftentimes, these more exotic recommendations aren't any better, and all they do is increase cost and decrease compliance. And so those are, are things that are definitely not going to help anybody, doctor or patient. Um, you know the and and also as we're learning more, we should expect these recommendations to change, right? I mean, as as yeah. we're getting better as a, a profession, we should expect change. So, um, you know, I, I hope hopefully people are on the same page with me in that regard. That changing is not does not mean that you made a mistake or you were doing the wrong thing. It's it's just part of learning and growing. So I'm doing things differently than I was a few years ago. And it's just because we learn more and we have to update. So, you know, hopefully everyone's embracing that kind of philosophy, where if you update, it doesn't mean you're necessarily admitting that you've done something quote unquote wrong, but rather now we know a better way. So let's update to that better way. One of the things that we used to think was that if you take a antibiotic or an antimicrobial along with a probiotic, then you're going to kill the probiotic and it's it's not going to be effective. And I think that's been pretty well disproven, um, very well disproven, specifically in the model of H. pylori. There has been a lot of data showing that the co-administration of antibiotics along with probiotics, the, the, the addition of the probiotics has a significant synergistic effect for H. pylori eradication. And so... When we look at that in the context, also that probiotics can be antibacterial, like anti antifungal, antiprotozoal, help with the gut immune system, help with gut permeability, then in my mind, it's a really good idea to be using antimicrobial therapy at the same time as using probiotics. Um, the, the seeding philosophy has been, you know, somewhat updated to now, you know, now, now understanding that most probiotics do not colonize you, but rather they have a transient effect. Um, So I don't think that that's necessary. I think that's making things much more difficult than they have to be. Um, And you can consolidate this to a very simple approach where um, you can do antimicrobials and probiotics at the same time. I like to start people with probiotics and diet change. And typically what we do is, We have them start on a diet, so if they're changing their diet, they're usually on the diet for two or three weeks before then adding in probiotics. This way when we follow up, I can get a sense for how effective the diet was in isolation and then after usually two to three weeks, they've kind of seen a leveling off from the impact of the diet. Now they add in the probiotics and we can get a somewhat isolated indication of how effective the probiotics have been. Uh, and then if there's still a need for response, then we can add in antimicrobial therapy while we keep them on a probiotic.
0: Great. I like that stepwise approach. And, and yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Simplicity, I think, yeah, sometimes, the um, uh, as, as you've said many, many times, the, the mechanistic uh, speculation tends to override our clinical judgment. Um, so I want to move on to uh, use of and looking at the data there. So the data... Sometimes it, people boast that Refaxman seems to be a, a, quite a panacea, but when you dive into the detail, um, it's typically maybe 30 to 50% of people uh, re- respond after the first round and we need those uh, follow-up rounds. So what's your interpretation? Not that to say that Refaxman's not effective. To me, there's something else going on. What's your take on the, the need to do multiple rounds and if that's the case with you, do you start diving deeper into what's going on?
1: It's a great question, um, and you know this is probably a multifactorial answer, and and I think we also still have some more here to learn. But I, I do have some thoughts. Um, sometimes someone is going to need more than two weeks in our facsimen or the equivalent one month in antimicrobials to see optimum response, and so we don't necessarily have to make this any more complicated than that. Where the reason people may be quote unquote relapsing after a course of Rifaximin for two weeks is because the course wasn't long enough to reestablish equilibrium in the gut or, or to, to get SIBO to the appropriate levels. So that's one consideration and that's where I would start. If someone may just simply need a longer term on the antibiotic or if you're using herbal antimicrobials on the herbals to see the response. Um, and some people may need to repeat treatment Uh, quite simply they may see good response and then they may regress a few months later and need a shorter more milder course of treatment Um, now oftentimes What is cited there as the reason for that regression is problems with motility, and that certainly I think is one thing to consider. And there was one study showing that the administration of prokinetics, namely tegaserod, and low dose erythromycin, helped prolong time in SIBO relapse, or I'm sorry, in in SIBO uh, remission. However people still tended to have a relapse. So the prokinetics extended time, but people still had these relapses. So there there may be this situation where people may need a a couple nudges to the microbiota over the course of many months to fully allow everything to heal and to recalibrate. Motility may be one of the factors driving that, but my suspicion is that the impact of motility may be slightly overstated. I think it's definitely important, but sometimes I think we forget that the immune system is also very important. It's an important part of IBS, of inflammation in the gut, of reactivity, and I think sometimes that is discounted. And, and so sometimes people may need to make sure that they're using other factors to help create a favorable impact or oh, I'm sorry a favorable environment in the gut because sometimes people relapse and it hasn't been truly quantified that the sibo by repeat breath testing and assessment of the gas levels is what's driving the relapse and this this happens in a lot of circles where people are just saying oh my sibo and they're using it as a catch-all term for everything and that's that's not good because what that ends up doing is it you're you're blaming something that you're not sure is actually the cause of your problem. And why that can be problematic is if you think it's just SIBO, then you're limiting yourself potentially to only the quote unquote SIBO treatments. Now, it may be that the immune system in the gut needs some time to unwind and, and, and no longer be as zealous with attacking so um, or reacting. So a low carb diet. Um, FODMAP restriction, periodic fasting, you know those things can be very helpful in trying to you know, um, increase the likelihood that you won't have a regression of symptoms. So that's just something important to mention also. Um, and another thing is there might be a different condition present. Sometimes people have SIBO plus something else. Uh, every once in a while, you see a case of SIBO plus. Um, lately, we, we've been discussing uh, gastritis as something that is sometimes okay. overlooked yeah. and, and being attributed as as the cause of their symptoms. Um, and then sometimes people get too fixated on their SIBO, on their diagnosis, and they're actually being too restrictive with their diet. And the thing they need to do in order to get to that next level of healing is think about SIBO and their gut less and actually make sure they move into a food reintroduction. Um, So those are some, some thoughts. Now there's also some patients who are dealt a very difficult hand and then we need to look into other therapies for patients that have a very difficult time responding. And so things here, maybe low dose naltrexone can be helpful. There's some interesting Um, protocols from Dr. Lawrence Afrin who was recently on the podcast who talks about mast cell activation syndrome. Uh, I think helmet therapy potentially may have some benefit for these people. And then at the end of the line, something to consider if all else has failed and someone is still fairly symptomatic could be fecal microbiota transplant therapy. So Mm I know I just kind of gave you a lot there, <laughs> no, but right. those are some things to think about.
0: There's plenty of gems in there from the, the whole spectrum all the way to FMT. <laughs> <laughs> um, just on the uh, prokinetics, um, so yeah, you feel there's maybe modest benefits to those. Uh, do you ever employ them at any stage, and, and what do you, do you use if you do?
1: We typically have our patients after SIBO go on a – or I say typically, but oftentimes depends on the severity of the case – um, if it looks like a case that's not as severe, then we, I, I, you know, I'm not having everyone go on prokinetics. I, I used to. Um, but oftentimes we'll have a moderate to severe cases go on a natural prokinetic after uh, their, their SIBO. Um, there are, uh, you know, or in some cases, a medication. Um, sometimes we'll use low dose naltrexone if someone has another. if if they have symptoms that may make us think that they would be a good candidate for low-dose naltrexone, um, you know, inflammatory and immune-type symptoms. Also, um, low-dose erythromycin is a consideration. Resilor or um, perclalopride is is probably the most effective, but it's it's also a little bit harder to get. Uh, So, you know, there's definitely some options there. We've been trying to, start a study where we would be looking at natural agents ability to prolong time in remission of SIBO. We've just had a very difficult time uh, with one formula we were going to study was taken off the market and with another with another compound we we're having a very difficult time with uh, placebo procurement. So uh, we're trying to replicate that, you know, replicate the tagacerad and low-dose erythromycin medication studies that showed that those medications could prolong time being SIBO-free. We're trying to replicate that with a natural agent to see okay. if they actually do work because there's really, to date, there's no data, no published verifiable data showing that they actually do work. It's likely that they will, um, but it's important to mention that you know we have no data that, that truly shows that. Um, so we use prokinetics in a lot of patients. Um, I'm using them a little bit less than I used to because I try to reserve them for the cases where I think they're going to be uh, most likely beneficial
0: okay great that's very helpful and one last error on the the SIBO is biofilms or the association with biofilms now biofilms are are something that's thrown around or mentioned a lot in functional medicine I'm still not sure if they're that relevant or not Um, so I know know you did some in-house trials with this so I've got a couple of questions like how do you know – can you know if biofilms are an issue? Can you test it? And how do you really know if you're actually treating biofilms per se?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did perform a retrospective chart review in, in my office and uh, we've had that drawn up and, and I've been slow to actually get that published <laughs> due to – being busy with the book, but that's something that we're we're going to publish soon, So top my list for as soon as the the book publishes in February. And we did show that the co-administration of antibiofilm agents with antimicrobial herbs has a significant effect on hydrogen and combination SIBO. Um, But even after that, I'm not using it as a frontline therapy, Okay. We we um, because it's one thing to show a significant impact; it's the other thing for it to be clinically, clinically. meaningful. Yeah, um, and so it, it's important to keep that in mind because if you if you keep spackling on every therapy that has shown any kind of benefit, you end up with what some patients unfortunately experience, which they leave a doctor's office taking fifteen to twenty supplements. Um, and you know, I'm open to that, but you know, it's that really limits how many people that we can help because not everyone is motivated to spend that much money on supplements and to take you know swallow that many pills yeah. nor nor do I think it's actually needed. So I'm open to using this and and we do use the antibiofilm agents in some cases, mm-hmm. but we typically reserve those for cases that have responded both symptomatically and from a lab perspective, but the the treatment hasn't fully eradicated symptoms and or their lab tests. And so if we're gonna do a second and a third round of treatment, now this is when we consider using a antibiofilm agent synergistically. Um, I, I think um, for H. pylori it's another consideration. Okay. But we have studies showing that the co administration of probiotics enhances the, tr- the cure rate or the clearance rate of H. pylori. So when we do probiotics with antibiotics for H. pylori, that works better than antibiotics alone. Um, while we don't have any data that shows this specifically, I'm assuming that the same thing will hold true um, or evidence will show, will show the same thing to hold true for SIBO, that when we use antimicrobial therapy along with probiotics, we have a better clearance rate for SIBO than using one of those alone. So when you start looking at this, um, then the, the question starts to become how much would the, if, if you're doing both antimicrobial therapy and the probiotic, how much additional would the biofilms help? Um, and so this is why I reserve some of these therapies and I, and I don't give people, you know, seven therapies right out of the gate. Uh, and, I, and I tell my patients when they ask me about using an antibiofilm agent, uh, I say, um, you know, we, we don't know right now that you're going to be a very hard case. So let's not treat you as such. Um, let's see how you respond initially. And then we can consider these other therapies like antibiofilm agents, should you not be responding optimally. So we do use them, but I try to reserve them for when they seem to be the most indicated, namely for when patients are a little bit more minimally responsive.
0: Okay. And what what are some of the biofilm agents that you, you've used or, or use now? N-acetylcysteine is one. Okay.
1: Uh, Interphase plus is another, and cemento is a third. Now, I should mention <clears throat> excuse me, that most antimicrobials, and I believe antibiotics, have you know, inherent antibiofilm action. So when you use something like oregano or garlic, you're getting some yeah. antibiofilm activity. And when you use probiotics, they have also been shown to have antibiofilm activity. So please don't think that the only way you're going to have any impact on biofilms is by using something specifically for biofilms. Many of the antimicrobial therapies and probiotics have antimicrobial um, action.
0: Great. Playing the percentages with probiotics and antimicrobials and things like that. that is great. All right. Um, so that's prokinetics, that's biofilm. Otherwise, any other general sort of recommendations or things you want to cover off for the treatment of SIBO?
1: Well, of course, diet. We've talked about a few of those. You may want to consider some enzymes and some hydrochloric acid. I'd be a little bit cautious with hydrochloric acid. I, I think the, the utility of that has been a bit overstated. You still use it. Um, I just don't believe in the keep taking it until you feel burning and then take one or two le- less capsules per meal. I think that's, that's a mistake. Um, also keep in mind that some people will, will react negatively to especially hydrochloric acid. Uh, so if you see gnawing pain, burning, nausea, reflux, then take them off of that. And some people will actually have their diarrhea provocated by bile because bile is actually a laxative. So if, And we've had a f- couple cases where everything improved except for their diarrhea. And the solution was not an oat test, was not a Lyme test, was not antiviculant antibodies. It was taking them off bile, right? So it's just important not to overlook some of those simple things, Um, especially with bile. Although histamine diet can be something to consider if someone's not initially responsive, as can an elemental diet. That can definitely be helpful Um, and also fun And, and, you know, thinking less about their SIBO or their gut and also reintroducing their diet, like we talked about a little while ago. That can be helpful. Uh, we talked about the mass activation syndrome to consider and helmets to consider. The, the mass activation syndrome and the helmets are something that I've been experimenting with in the clinic, and I'm curious to see if they seem to be effective for people. Um, but those both may be more so immune system treatments. And I, I think for many patients, the the myths, you know, we, we know a lot about the dysbiosis, the, the SIBO, the candida, whatever. But I don't think as much attention is paid to the immune system, and that's important. So, my my speculation is we may start seeing more of the therapies go in that direction, because that may be one of the you know less addressed components of non-responsive care.
0: Great, that's very useful. All right, a couple more. I want to go to sort of cause and effect? That's been sort of bothering me for a while. Is the the connection between um, SIBO and thyroid? Um, many argue that the hypothyroidism is caused by the SIBO, but on the other side, you could argue that the the hypothyroidism slows motility and allows the, the bacteria to flourish. How do you tease that apart, or can you?
1: Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> whew, you know, there's as you know, there you know I have a lot to say on, on thyroid. Um, Unfortunately, I think it's one of those very attractive to market topics, and so there's a plethora of information out there on this, and it's not all very um, accurate. Um, we do know that there's an association between hypothyroid, irrespective of if you're on medication and your levels are now normal, um, there, there's a, an association between treated or untreated hypothyroid and SIBO. Now. Is that cause or effect? We don't really know, but it does appear that it's not thyroid hormone level dependent because we see this same association occur whether or not someone is on thyroid hormone and now has normal thyroid hormone levels in the blood. So there's definitely an association, Mm. whether or not it's causal, it's hard to say. My speculation, and this is admittedly extremely speculative and only based just upon you know, my thinking about this, um, you know, and in, in, in trying to imagine what the solution or the, the
0: yeah.
1: uh, association may be, is perhaps small intestinal bacterial overgrowth decreases selenium status. Uh, bacteria in the gut can sequester selenium. And that may create a subtle deficiency in selenium, which could then exacerbate the underlying genetics for thyroid autoimmunity. We know that selenium deficiency is one of the environmental factors that when accompanied with the right genetics can initiate thyroid autoimmunity. So perhaps the SIBO is is there eating up selenium and therefore potentially exacerbating the genetics of uh, thyroid autoimmunity. Yeah, that's my speculation that may or may not be true, but we definitely know that there is an association and it's important to address both the, the thyroid function and the SIBO. Uh, just be careful because sometimes patients are told that they have hypothyroid when they when they really don't. And, and some patients end up on medication when they don't really have to be. Uh, I'm, I'm open to using thyroid hormone as a support. It's just important that we clarify, if you're a provider, we're going to do a therapeutic trial of thyroid hormone and see if you respond compared to you have diagnosed hypothyroidism and you require medication. Um, but certainly, checking for hypothyroidism and treating it if it is present is uh, is is definitely very important. Um, with the antibodies, if if you're below if you're below four to five hundred for your TPO antibodies, you're probably okay. And um, looking at a TSH and a Uh, Free T4 is adequate to diagnose Frank hypothyroidism. I would make sure to use the dialysis method for testing the thyroid hormone, the the T4s and the T3s, because the dialysis method seems to be more accurate. And someone may actually be, they may actually look subclinical hypothyroid on their lab testing. What is that? that? That means that your TSH has been flagged high, but your T4 is actually normal. So this is called subclinical hypothyroid. And this does not generally require treatment. However, if that T4 has been evaluated with the immunoassay methodology, you may actually be seeing a false normal. And if you repeat that test with the dialysis method, you actually may now see the T4 low. And if the T4 is low paired with a high TSH, now you are hypothyroid. And and why this is relevant, to put it very simply, the... Binding proteins in the blood may skew the read on the T4s and the T3s. The dialysis method filters out those binding proteins. That is only relevant. That bit of academic minutiae is only relevant because there have been studies done showing that TSH and the T4s and T3s are more representative of patient symptoms using the dialysis method compared to the immunoassay.
0: Okay, great. Um, And just for the record, um, and... If you can do a brief, I'm sure, but you could probably do another whole podcast. And you have, uh, when you say elevated TSH, um, I think I was guilty in the past of being a bit thyrocentric. This is not sort of, you know, mild elevated TSH. This is frank elevated TSH.
1: Frank elevated TSH, and, and here's something. And I'm really glad you asked the question, Nathan. Now, there there may be something to the narrower ranges that functional medicine uses for the T4s and the T3s. Okay, but but. If we use the dialysis method, because it filters out for this this confounding binding protein, we can more so rest assured that if it's high or low according to the conventional ranges, then it's truly high or low. So what I'm saying is that when you use the more accurate methodology of the dialysis method, you can use the conventional ranges and not have to worry about the narrower functional medicine interpretation ranges.
0: Great. All right, a couple more, um, just changing off topic somewhat. Um, oh, Well, autoimmune. A, a question we had from Congress was your uh, autoimmune paleo diet. We wanted to know how that differed from a conventional, if that's a, a term, conventional paleo diet.
1: Oh, okay, so great question. So um, there's a couple different derivations on the paleo diet. Essentially, the autoimmune paleo diet will cut out – eggs, nuts, seeds, beans, legumes, and nightshade vegetables, essentially. Um, So it's a more restrictive iteration of the paleo diet. So paleo has the most food you can eat, autoimmune paleo is a bit more strict. It's not to say that the autoimmune paleo diet is the best diet for every autoimmune condition. But it does cut out many foods that are inflammatory or can be irritating to the gut, and so it's certainly a consideration. If someone's, for example, responded only partially to paleo, then considering having them go to the autoimmune paleo could definitely be helpful. And interestingly, there was recently a published study that showed that the autoimmune paleo diet was quite effective and quite helpful for inflammatory bowel disease. and so we're you know we are starting to see some evidence showing the, the benefit from this diet, but essentially it's a, a few foods that are restricted on top of the paleo diet that make the autoimmune paleo diet different.
0: And the, the rationale for those ones briefly. Uh,
1: the rationale is, is you're just cutting out more foods that could potentially be inflammatory or irritating. So the, the nightshades, the nuts, seeds, eggs, beans, legumes, um, they may con- they may contain capsaicin or lectins. Mm-hmm. Um, that they can or other compounds that uh, uh, f- other immunogenic compounds in the eggs for example that people may react to so you're, you're cutting out more foods that have been shown to some extent to be uh, irritating or to cause reactions in people
0: great all right one final question back to the SIBO, uh, SIBO sorry um, how long after you've achieved remission do you allow or encourage the reintroduction of more fermentable things such as um, fiber and and, and particularly um, prebiotics?
1: depends a little bit on the case. If it's a simpler case where someone has responded very quickly and and very well to everything that we've done, then we may have them reintroduce after um, their – so I like to have someone stay on the diet until they've reached their peak level of improvement. And typically, you see that within a few weeks to a month or two. And then once once they've hit their peak level of improvement and they've been stable in that for two, four, maybe six weeks, we can start to reintroduce. Now, the the healthier someone is, the more strongly they've responded, the more quickly we will go into that. Um, if someone's more of a complex case and it's taken us months to get improvement, um, we may not want to go too quickly. We may not want to rock the boat too much. And that, that fits. In the clinic, um, patients, who have had a hard road to improve are usually gun-shy about blasting right into a reintroduction. They're okay with kinda the slow steady approach. Um, So you partially have to play that based upon or or make that call based upon the person who's sitting in front of you. Also, sometimes what you can do is not go into a full reintroduction of everything but ask someone what are the two or three foods that you want to eat the most? Okay. Let's have you try those foods. If you're okay with them, you can keep eating them. If not, just try to only eat them sparingly. And what this can do is, you know, it doesn't launch you into reintroducing everything. But if there's two foods that someone is dying to eat, yeah, there's a good chance they may be okay eating those foods. And if they can get back on those and and their motivation become a lot higher because of that, then that's a great maneuver clinically.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for all those uh, answers. Um, Certainly, some clinical gems in there for not only patients but also practitioners. Um, I'm curious to see if your selenium cybo thyroid hypothesis uh, eventuates. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so, one last question tell me about the book. How, how's that coming along?
1: Ah, book is, is great, it'll be out um, pre sale, should start on January 15th, and then the book will be available. On February fifteenth, and you'll see some updates on the website and an updated store to go along with with some of the protocols that are available in the book. But I'm very excited about it. Essentially, you know, all these things that you've heard me talk about with with a simple approach, stepwise approach to improving someone's gut health have been laid out into the the action plan at the end of the book. And I'm uh, you know I'm either going to retire after <laughs> this book if it sucks, I'm just going <laughs> to hang up my doctor hat, uh, or uh, I'm very hopeful that it's, it's going to help a lot of people and, and and be a very impactful read that will you know right some of the wrongs where, where we've maybe been a little bit off the mark in, yeah. in natural medicine and, and also really showcase where we've been really right and we have a lot to offer and and help people navigate that in a simple efficient manner and and get well so yeah as you can tell yeah. I'm, I'm very excited about it i
0: think i'm i'm sure it will be the latter of those two options where you'll um really help a lot of patients and practitioners And hopefully you have a bit of time off to yourself after all this hard work as well.
1: Yeah, that would be nice. I'm definitely looking to work a little bit less on the the other end of this. Fantastic. Awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.